Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Earlier this month, an airstrike in Yemen killed 50 people, 40 of them school children. Headlines about the event have been suitably outraged. USA Today said U.S. lawmakers demand answers after scores of children are killed in Yemen airstrike. An opinion piece in the Philadelphia Inquirer was headlined, I don't remember voting for U.S. bombs to murder little kids in Yemen, do you? A piece in foreign policy was, um, America is committed war crimes and doesn't even know why. We are going to talk about U.S. policy in Yemen with Shireen Al-Adini, a writer and assistant professor at the University at Michigan State University. And the article that she wrote in In These Times just before the bombing was fine print in the U.S. defense bill acknowledges that the war in Yemen will go on indefinitely. Thanks for joining us, Shireen. Thank you for having me. You know, I think one of the reasons this uh, incident resonated in U.S. headlines and in the media is obviously the high number of school children there in this video that um, I'm sure a lot of people saw online that was taken by one of the school children who was killed, but their phone survived the attack. And we see the happy school children bouncing around in the bus, just like we would our own school children on a field trip. And um, I, I I, but this incident is it's not an isolated incident. The, these things happen consistently in Yemen where high numbers of civilians get killed. Could you contextualize this for us a little? Right. So like you said, this war has been going on for three and a half years now. And the Saudi-led coalition, which the United States is a part of, has really shown no um, you know, attempt to um, – just not target civilians. Um, the UN at one point said that they were targeting civilians intentionally, given the rate of civilian casualties in Yemen. Tens of thousands dead so far. Uh, of course, not to speak about the blockade, which has caused the starvation of children, 113,000 children in 2016 and 2017. So the casualties are quite um, staggering. And this latest attack shows, you know, again, the brutality of the Saudi-led coalition that school children even weren't spared. They were on a bus. They were carrying UNICEF backpacks. They were so excited to be on the bus after the end of summer school. And um, the Saudi-led coalition admitted that they were, in fact, a target. So uh, these crimes have been ongoing. Um, I think this one captured the attention of the U.S. media, unfortunately, uh, very late into this war, just because I think of how gruesome this particular strike was. Now, the Congress has uh, looked at this a few times, and in the U.S. defense bill, I um, referenced a little bit that um, there was some attempt to create some level of accountability for airstrikes in Yemen in this gigantic $700 billion U.S. defense bill. Could you explain what happened there and why it was insufficient? Well, it's insufficient because last year Congress passed a bill H Resolution 599, which acknowledges that the U.S. is at war in Yemen without congressional authorization. Fast forward a few months, and we have these provisions that allow mid-air refueling of the Saudi-led coalition's planes, which the United States has been providing for the last three and a half years. It allows those under certain conditions. So it doesn't say that this defense bill will ensure that no military assistant goes to Saudi Arabia, that we're not going to help them wage this war in Yemen. It says that, well, we're not going to use it toward mid-air refueling unless the Saudis show that there are some you know, provisions uh, to mitigate civilian casualties. That's very vague. I'm not sure what that means. 
Um, and of course, then defense, the secretary of state can offer, uh, can issue a waiver to allow security uh, uh, mid-air refueling for security reasons. So there's some kind of justification then for these mid-air refueling, despite acknowledging previously that we're in Yemen without congressional approval. So it's a bit of a contradiction there. Now, it seems like a lot of defense officials are um, a little reluctant to say that the U.S. is definitively involved in the war in Yemen. They they seem to be defensive about mid-air refueling and what it means and the level of intelligence that they offer Saudi Arabia. How do you parse what the Defense Department says about this? I think they get defensive when the spotlight is on them after a particularly gruesome airstrike. So we see this, you know, the questions are being asked now about U.S. role because of this attack on school bus, uh, on the school bus. And two years ago, when there was an attack on a funeral home that killed over 150 people, there were again questions about U.S. involvement. But um, in between, the U.S. has acknowledged that there are refueling and that there's no question that the refueling has continued. Um that there's assistance with air with airstrikes, you know, in the command room. Uh, of course, there's hundreds of billions of dollars sold in weapons. Uh, and the Army, you know, in January, they released a statement detailing all the different contracts they have with the Saudi Arabians. You know, they train their military personnel. They update and maintain their vehicles. And we also know that there are U.S. special forces on the ground at the Yemen-Saudi Arabia border. So the U.S. is intricately involved in this war. Uh, when questions are asked, unfortunately, after a particularly gruesome air, airstrike, they, you know, they tend to step back and say, well, we, we're not sure. We're not keeping track. Uh, but you know, the facts uh, state otherwise. Uh, What do you think stands in the way of accountability here? Well, I think, unfortunately, um, so many countries, including the United States, the UK, Canada, they're making a lot of money out of this war. Saudi Arabia has purchased $110 billion worth of weapons under the Obama administration and signed a contract for $330 billion in sales under the Trump administration. So it really comes down to money. We know that this is not beneficial for us strategically. Uh, yes, Yemen is controls Bab el Mendeb, which is an important ge- ge- uh, geographic location where you know 4.3 billion a million barrels of oil travel each day. But beyond that, um, there there's documentation. There's a latest report by AP and previously by you know Frontline and the BBC showing extensive cooperation between Al Qaeda and the Saudi-led military. So we know that. You know, on the one hand, the U.S. says that it's trying to eliminate al-Qaeda in Yemen. On the other hand, they're working with allies who are negotiating with al-Qaeda and working with them very openly. Um, It doesn't serve us to be starving a nation of 27 million people um, who's really posed no threat to the United States at all or to Saudi Arabia. This was a civil war. The Saudis tried to um, intervene in the civil war. And I think because Saudi Arabia is the United States' closest ally in that region, the U.S. jumped to its defense, um, despite it being such an unnecessary and brutal war. I'm talking with Shireen Aladimi. She's an assistant professor at Michigan State University, and her article in In These Times with fine print in the defense bill acknowledges U.S.-backed war in Yemen will go on indefinitely. I'd like to add to the conversation now Stephen Rapp. He's a former U.S. ambassador-at-large for war crimes issues. He's a former chief prosecutor at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, and he's currently a visiting fellow at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum Center for the Prevention 
prevention of genocide. And Stephen Rapp, I've talked to on the program before, and he recently wrote a piece called uh, Time for a Reckoning in Yemen. Uh, thanks for joining us, Stephen Rapp. Glad to be with you. Um, what kind of reckoning would you like to see in Yemen? Well, I mean, the, the first uh, aspect of this is uh, clearly for there to be a uh, uh, good investigation of what's, of what's going on. We do have this uh, uh, U.N. Uh, uh, committee of experts. It was uh, given a weakened mandate by the U.N. Human Rights Council last September because the U.S. had uh, opposed and several other countries had opposed a stronger mandate. It can find uh, sort of facts and circumstances surrounding uh, uh, the events here. Uh, but we need, a, I think, a much stronger mandate to be able to uh, really investigate this and uh, and the parties uh, to the conflict, uh, including the, the 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 Houthi-led government in, in Sanaa and the uh, uh, and the and the coalition-supported uh, government. Out of out of Aden uh, should be providing uh, access, and, um, and that's important. Now we'll, we'll see a report uh, from this uh, commission uh, here in about uh, in about three weeks, and it'll go before the Human Rights Council. Unfortunately, the United States has withdrawn from the Human Rights Council, so our ability to participate actively in this in this debate discussion isn't isn't there. But uh, other countries uh, will lead uh, in in our absence, and uh, and, and frankly, we hadn't uh, been leading on this one uh, uh, today. Uh, the second aspect of it, and Shireen was talking about it, and it's what's dealt with in a rather weak way in this uh, McCain defense authorization bill the president signed last Monday, uh, has to do with the United States' uh, assistance uh, to the, the Saudi-led coalition uh, uh, that obviously is involved in this uh, bombing that uh, on a school bus that killed 40 children uh, on August 9th and more than uh, 50 strikes against uh, against vehicles, civilian vehicles, uh, during the course of uh, of just 2018, actually at a greater rate than in, than in previous years, and and making sure that uh, that these are one investigated, and two that uh, uh, this coalition is 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 making uh, the effort that's required by the laws of war to minimize civilian casualties. Uh, that's not been the case. Uh, I mean, this occurred in Sada. At one time, the coalition announced that everything in Sada was a military target. That's that's nonsense under the laws of war. Um, this law requires a certification or a waiver, uh, but uh, it could very the refueling that we're doing right now could continue. Um, I uh, am particularly uh, concerned about uh, about the fact that the U.S. by providing this this aid and assistance uh, is implicated in a way in the in the war crimes. Uh, I prosecuted uh, when I was chief prosecutor of the Special Court for Sierra Leone, uh, Charles Taylor, the president of Liberia, uh, and he in the end was convicted of eleven counts of crimes against humanity and war crimes committed next door uh, in Sierra Leone by his allies because he had provided substantial aid and under the law. You don't have to prove that the party providing the aid uh, wants the war crimes to happen, intends the war crimes to happen. It simply has to be that they have knowledge that they're going on, and we have that. Uh, and secondly, uh, that uh, that that aid is substantial. Now, obviously, that's a question of, of you know, could uh, could these airstrikes be taking place without this uh, refueling, given the distances involved uh, in in the Arabian Peninsula? Uh, so um, there is a real, very, very real danger that. Uh, we, by refueling uh, these these uh, vehicles, uh, are, uh, are are providing that kind of uh, substantial assistance. We would be held to account uh, 
by what court where. I mean, that's a challenge in this area where there's no court with jurisdiction, no ICC jurisdiction over any of these countries. Uh, but um, but still, we're we're upholders of the laws of war. And when we target in, in conflicts ourselves, uh, uh, there's an intense uh, effort made to uh, uh, to follow the laws of war, which require a distinction between military and, and civilian targets and, and uh, uh, precautions, uh, and and in the end, only proportionate uh, uh, force being used if there's any danger of of, uh, of of civilian objects being hit. In addition to all the civilian casualties we've been talking about, I know uh, not too long ago the UAE was, uh, and people have thrown around a lot of uh, discussion and accusations, and uh, so it looked like pretty good uh, evidence for torture of people who they'd been detaining uh, in Yemen. This just adds another layer. Absolutely, and I mean those are. <laughs> that's uh, of course that doesn't necessarily directly implicate us, but it does the UAE, the UAE individuals in these camps, uh, uh, which um, in which uh, Houthis or suspected uh, opponents of, of the coalition are being uh, uh, detained and allegedly tortured. Uh, uh, that would represent uh, uh, international crimes. The crime of torture is one that's recognized under international treaty as one of universal jurisdiction that can be prosecuted. Uh, uh, depending on a country's laws, but certainly as a matter of international law, anywhere uh, in the world, no matter uh, whether you've got the perpetrator or victim present in your country, and it's one of those that we we view as as uh, sort of a, a you know a, a class A, a crime of of a sort that the world made a decision in the torture convention uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, to to uh, to put at the sort of highest level of of, of international accountability, and. Uh, all of this, of course, indicates that what you have to do is to uh, is to have proper investigation, ICRC inspection of, of those detention facilities. I mean, this is a technically a non-international armed conflict, but uh, the rules uh, apply as as well because you've got uh, uh, different sides controlling territory in a very state-like manner, and so there's these all of the war crimes really that apply in uh, uh, in international armed conflict uh, apply here as well. So those are things that need to be. Uh, investigated in a, in a tough way. Now, I do want to say, you know, obviously, I know when, when Amnesty International was doing its report on another aspect of this, which is the starvation of the population, uh, 8 million people under under real threat of, of famine, uh, the whole uh, attack on Hodeida, which is which is ongoing despite uh, uh, pressures and warnings, uh, um, even from the U.N. Security Council, um, that, uh, that 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 you know, there's also examples of uh, the Houthi government uh, uh, restraining or, or, or controlling the supplies of food to various areas, and, and certainly we've got the the the, the, the government at Sana shooting off rockets uh, in into Saudi Arabia in a, in a way that clearly uh, uh, aren't aimed at any particular military target. So there are violations on on both sides. Though I think uh, as as we look at what's occurred, uh, the the dominant violations are by the Saudi-led uh, coalition. I'm talking with Stephen Rapp, former U.S. Ambassador-at-Large for War Crimes Issues. And also on the line with us is Shireen Aladimi, writer and assistant professor at Michigan State University. Uh, uh, Shireen, it, you know, it seems like the Saudis are determined to win and really just push the Houthis out, and um, they're not too worried about changing their tactics here. Uh, is any is there anything that Congress could do if there were a new Congress uh, would you focus your energies there if you wanted to see this situation stop? 
Well, like Stephen said, there are questions about how much the Saudis rely on the U.S. support to wage this war. So uh, many in Yemen uh, view this as a U.S.-Saudi war on their country, and they know that the U.S. is instrumental in uh, providing, facilitating this war, that the Saudis do not manufacture their own weapons, they do not train their own soldiers, they do not refuel their own planes, and so they rely extensively on U.S. support. And without the support, perhaps the war cannot go on much longer. Uh, and so... Congress has twice invoked the War Powers Resolution to try to extricate the U.S. from hostilities in Yemen. And I think that's the route we've got to go because um, really that's the only hope. Saudi Arabia, this is an ego issue for them at this point. Mohammed bin Salman called this a decisive storm when he launched the attack in March of 2015. He was expecting by all accounts that this was going to be a quick you know, in and out victory. Of course, it didn't pan out that way. He hasn't gained any more ter territories in the last uh, three years. And so there's no end in sight if we rely on the Saudis to, to stop the war or the Emiratis. But uh, I think if the U.S. stops its assistance and its facilitation of this war, then it'll make it very difficult for the Saudis to continue to wage the war. Um, Stephen Ramp, do you, th how do you, how does, you know, the people who want to stop this war overcome the the fact that Saudi Arabia buys so much weaponry from the U.S. and that seems to really carry the day within Washington. Well, I mean, it's a political <laughs> uh, pressure. It's it's individual congressmen, and, and as you say, we'll we'll have a new Congress elected here in 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 uh, seven or eleven or excuse me, uh, uh, eleven or twelve weeks, and uh, and we'll. Uh, and then we'll see what happens under under new leadership when things like the defense appropriations bill are considered next time. And certainly for Congress to be serious about the War Powers Act, I mean, the Houthis have have nothing to do with you know 9/11 or the the kind of a thing where we do have an authorization for the use of force following the Al Qaeda attack. And if anything, we're in this one on the side of of, of a group that has 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 worked with Al Qaeda it to be frank uh, and so there's there's no legal authorization for this and and Congress uh, people of both parties need to be serious about uh, uh, constitutional war powers and insist that if the administration uh, wants to continue this uh, very active support this enabling support uh, that it seek uh, the the approval of Congress uh, under appropriate conditions and uh, that's that's what needs to be done and, and Congress needs to demand it so in that way, we hope we can affect it. I, obviously, there is, uh, beyond the economics of it, and the Saudis uh, being such a big purchaser of our of, of, of weapons from the United States, uh, uh, the, the geopolitical aspect where we get drawn in, uh, uh, you know, in the sort of Shia-Sunni Shia conflict, the Houthis being allied to Iran, right. and, and that's another aspect of right. it. It also motivates St us. Uh, but, I mean, these are, these are factors. You know, we, we aren't helping uh, anybody uh, by this conflict, and there's no way that at the end of the day that it can be resolved in any way other than peace. You've got a country that's... that's Stephen Rapp is a former U.S. ambassador at large for war crimes issues and chief prosecutor at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. Thanks for joining us. And Shireen Al-Adimi is a writer and assistant professor at Michigan State University. Her piece in End These Times was fine print in the defense bill acknowledges the U.S.-backed war in Yemen will go on indefinitely. Coming up after the break, we'll have our film contributor, Milos Stalik, stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our film contributor, Milo Stalik from Facets Multimedia, and it's good to see you. Hey, Jerome. Great to be here. Milos, there are a lot of interesting film festivals in town, and today we're going to run down a few of them and get people out of the multiplex and get them into see some decent, really interesting films. And get people out of the idea which everybody in August or mid-August complains about, there is nothing to see, which I hear constantly now. And in a way, that's true because there aren't very many openings right now, but... This, there's an enormous number of film festivals which bring, back, bring, bring out new and old films, which are very exciting. Now, uh, first, which f- festival do you want to talk about? Let's talk about silent film. Let's start at the very beginning, and let's <laughs> talk about the greatest era of filmmaking ever. Why was it the greatest era of filmmaking ever? Because it, it worked with the pure image. You know, uh, Kevin Brownwell, the great film historian, said everything that was to be done in, in film was already done in silent film. And if you look at the number of masterpieces that, that are present and that emerged from the silent era, it's just astonishing. We've just been playing catch-up and fiddling with the fine-tuning ever since. Uh, the Chicago inter- uh, the Chicago Silent Film Festival has been happening for, I, I don't know, 17 or 18 years now. And I go pretty regularly. I got to admit, I am a I'm a sucker, and I like to learn things and find out new things about film. And I, I like the comedies. I like the slapstick. But this year, they're showing Rin Tin Tin, which is a film that was kind of a landmark, and it saved the studio system, and it was a huge hit, and and it, and it had a you know a dog at the center. I like dogs, too. Well, I mean, and the first Rin Tin Tin, of whom, of course, there were many, as there were yep. many lassies afterwards, but the original Rin Tin Tin came from World War One. I. I mean, he was actually a dog uh, rescued by an American soldier during during the First World War. He started out in the silent era. The, the, I think this is the third film that Rin Tin Tin was in, uh, is Where the North Begins, and that's what the film festival is showing. Uh, shot partially in Alaska, a film that went way over budget. But obviously, an incredible dog. And I'm all in favor of dog performances because they beat human performances anytime. <laughs> they are naturals on the screen. Absolutely. They do their thing. And, and um, that sounds like fun. And this Rin Tin Tin, uh, there was a book recently written about the original Rin Tin Tin story. And it was, it was on Terry Gross and everything. It's a, it's a rip-roaring story. It's, you know, it, la- it was, this, it was a, a first franchise in a way, right? Because it went to series, it went to television. I mean, it continued for many, many, many years. So obviously, at the heart of it is, is, is really a classic kind of construct story, of course, with Rin Tin Tin being the great hero- heroic German shepherd that always saves the day. All right. The Silent Film Fest in Chicago is Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It's at the Filament Theater on Milwaukee, which is uh, kind of a storefront theater for many years. The Silent Film Fest uh, held down the portage. So this will be kind of a, a, a smaller place, but it's got a live theater organ, as usual, by Jay Warren, who puts this together every year, and uh, Buster Keaton, Fatty Arbuckle, Chaplin films. There's a Lon Chaney film, uh, the first night here. So it's an unusual stuff. Lon Chaney, you know, who was always the in so many horror films, but here kind of, kind of a political uh, film, Ace of Hearts, which deals with the assassination plot among a group of anarchists who were seen as the big threats in the silent era. Ah, cool. So that, that's uh, the Lon Chaney film, Ace of Hearts, tonight. Uh, let's move over to the Cisco Film Center, which actually has a couple of ongoing 
film festivals, and uh, they're both really terrific. The first is the Black Harvest Film Fest. Yeah, Black Harvest, which is a festival of African-American cinema, African-American independence. Uh, I don't know which year this is, but it's held every single summer. And this weekend, they're showing a couple of really interesting films, uh, one of which is a, a biopic of... Uh, um, Betty of, Davis? Of Betty Davis, a, a, a singer from North Carolina, who was really an astonishing and quite unknown, forgotten character. She's, she was uh, born in North Carolina, uh, child prodigy, started writing songs at, the, at a very early age, at the age of 12, uh, met and married uh, Miles Davis, uh, influenced him a great deal, even though their marriage only lasted a year. And then uh, kind of became, wrote many songs which are like Nasty Girl, or If I'm in Luck, I Might Get Picked Up, um, was really considered trailblazer for what came later for singers like Madonna, uh, for Prince, for Rick James. And then because much of what she did was, was quite controversial, controversial, she was banned, boycotted, and ended up living in 35 years of obscurity and seclusion outside of Pittsburgh. And that's where this filmmaker found her. And the film is Betty, They Say I'm Different by Phil Cox at the Black Harvest Film Festival. That sounds like a good one, that's for sure. And that's uh, running on Sunday and Monday at the Siskel Center. Right, and there's also an interesting local film called The Area, which has to do with the dispossession of residents of Englewood in something which was a very controversial local political story with turning uh, homes owned by African Americans into the Norfolk Southern uh, Railway uh, freight terminal. And so this is a new documentary playing next Thursday, directed by David Chaliot, who spent a lot of time there filming this among the residents of the community. Black Harvest Film Fest, it's at the Siskel Center and continues there uh, for uh, quite some time. It has a few days uh, this weekend where you can see these films. That's uh, The area is coming up on Thursday, August 23rd. Uh, Milos, we're talking about different film festivals, and one of the um, key figures in art cinema over the last century has been Ingmar Bergman, and his uh, his life and career is being celebrated. A hundred right, years. Right, he will be a hundred years old. There's many docu- you know, there's many documentaries that come out on the centenary of Bergman's uh, de- uh, birth. Rather, uh, he's kind of been absent out of out of discussion for maybe a decade or two since 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 he died kind of off the radar and now going back to him you really realize what an incredible artist and bigger than a filmmaker really because he was a philosopher a psychologist an innovator a dramatist a director uh, really a life force uh, who did something new and original in cinema so it's incredibly great to revisit him especially the black and white films he made, you know, because black and white is always superior to color. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so especially revisiting. It's a shame they had to add sound to it eventually. But they, Absolutely, they, exactly. But they, uh, Now, I always think of Bergman as a interior guy, a guy of uh, relationships and uh, not a big picture dude. But there's a film coming up, Shame, that is about war and victims of war. And uh, there are some, he's got some big statement films that I really don't know anything about. You know, shame, I mean, you're absolutely right uh, about what you said about Bergman. I mean, and shame is the one political film which is not directly political, so it's not topical, I mean, as in Sweden or Germany or somebody being at war, World War II. It's more generally about war, a mythical war that happens. Max von Sydow and Liv Ullmann are the two 
characters in it fleeing from this conflict. But in that, it's really a powerful anti-war film against all war. It's a pacifist statement from, from Bergman, something that you don't really expect, expect in a way, yeah. but it's done in a very, very dramatic way. I mean, it's, it's uh, there's really horrific scenes of fleeing from this conflict, trying to defend themselves, trying to save themselves. In a way, it harks back to what happens to individuals in times of war, something that, which is often neglected. And Bergman goes back to this, and it's, it's very, very, very powerful. And it stars Max von Sydow and Liv Ullman and big stars in Bergman films. And, Absolutely. Uh, they have a relationship, and that gets pulverized, I imagine, by the war. Yeah, exactly. Also, uh, The Virgin Spring is uh, playing on Saturday the 18th and Monday the 20th. First film for which Bergman won an Academy Award and uh, made after Seven Seal, which kind of was his breakthrough film that really brought him. Similar kind of theme because it's based on a medieval story. And uh, it starts out with a really brutal rape and what happens in the wake of it. All right. That's the Igmar Bergman uh, Film Fest that's continuing on at the Siskel Film Center, celebrating 100 years of Igmar Bergman. And lastly, we come to the Music Box, and they have a, a different kind of eclectic uh, a thing going on here with the, the Noir City Chicago Film Fest. And Noir City is a festival which was begun by Eddie Mueller, who lives in San Francisco and who organizes this. I went to actually to this festival in San Francisco once. I mean, it, there it's an incredible event. I mean, it's the Castro Theater, which is a huge old movie palace, thousands of people selling photographs and people dressed up in film noir. This has become a whole culture all of its own. It's become really a force because now it's so successful in its tour that they're able to restore a certain number of films. And this year's noir, noir City, which comes to Chicago, is very interesting because it's eclectic. It gives us a couple rarities, like the film called Conflict with Humphrey Bogart and Sidney Greenstreet, uh, in which Bogart plays a scheming wife killer. Uh, and so other films by major directors like Michael Curtiz, a film which they're showing the unsuspected. Curtiz, of course, having done Casablanca, Angel with Dirty Faces, Yankee Doodle Dandy. To a couple of films from a filmmaker who you would not necessarily not always think of first when you think of film noir, which is Carl Franklin, uh, one of the major African-American uh, filmmakers who came up as a part of the L.A. Rebellion, along with other filmmakers who uh, graduated from um, USC at the time. The two films, One False Move and uh, Devil in a Blue Dress with Denzel Washington and uh, Jennifer Beals. Yeah, that was supposed to be a pretty good film, The, the Devil in a Blue Dress. I, I remember when that came out. He's a very, very good director, you know, who's had a very odd career because he's done a lot of television. He also acts. I mean, so it's it's not easy to see Carl Franklin as, as a singular auteur because he's gone where he's been able to work. But there's no question that he has a, a great deal of talent. And in, and in Devil in a Blue Dress, he... Use and and in uh, one false move, he uses the African American community as a background for uh, this noirish exploration of a freelance detective who goes out and searches for a mysterious white woman hiding out. All right, Noir City, Chicago, 2018. Look for it at the Music Box. Uh, dress up like Humphrey Bogart. Do what you have to do. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and lastly. Um, 
Chicagoland Shorts? Chicagoland Shorts is a festival which I think is in its fourth year. It's a pop-up festival in the sense that it moves around from place to place. There have been a number of screenings, but it has another screening happening this very soon on August 22nd at the Beverly Arts Center on the far south side, not a place we associate very often with movies. And it's interesting to see the shorts all made by young Chicago filmmakers, short films, among which are experimental films like Solar Pulse, uh, a film called Veracity by Seath Mann, which is about an African-American student who is outed out by her friends, uh, or The Magic Hedge by a filmmaker named Frederick Moffat, which explores a bird sanctuary, which happens to be in a former Cold War war nuke site, missile site, on Chicago's north side. Well, that's excellent. I, I, I know where that bird sanctuary is, and if he goes and he takes pictures of the birds so I can see them, so I don't have to run up there and you don't hang even, out and do you, all the birding myself, that's a good deal. You can leave your binoculars at home. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go, Milos. I think you've done your due diligence. You've, you've given people five film fests to deal with. And that's uh, all in that's one all weekend. You so you can spend, you know, you can get up very early. <laughs> and skip your breakfast and head straight for the movies. <laughs> all right. Film contributor Milo Stalik from Facets running down all the great movies that are out there this weekend. It's, uh, it's a festival of festivals. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll take you to the islands of the Caribbean on one weekend passport. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend Nari Safavi is co-founder of the Pasfarda Arts and Cultural Exchange, and he's our tour guide. Great to see you, Nari. Uh, Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Where are we going first? We're going to go take a big grand tour of the islands uh, here this weekend. But before we get uh, started on our island tours, uh, I want to mention a couple of things. One is that the Pilsen Fest is happening this weekend, and this is going to, uh, going to be this Saturday and Sunday. And it's a sort of a, a, a celebrating the rich tapestry of cultures of Pilsen. Latino and other things, Mexican-Americans. There is theater, poetry, and cultural and food handicrafts uh, and educational stuff for kids going on. That will be a worthwhile thing to check out in the Pilsen neighborhood. They've always got fantastic music, and uh, I was we were looking at bands from Mexico that were coming in for this. And, yeah, very uh, interesting stuff terrific. going on. Get yourself up to date to that. And there's also the second annual Taste of Black Chicago going on this weekend, and this is uh, focused on creative culinary artists uh, of uh, of Chicago who are African-Americans and also focuses a little bit on food vendors and caterers and other 
enterprises that are African-American-centric. And it's happening tomorrow, August 18th, at the Mosque Merriam on Stony Island Avenue. So that would be one thing to check it out, too. Yeah, that sounds fun. I've got 55 different food vendors at the Taste of Black Chicago, including Imani Bean Pies, uh, Soul Vegan, Chocolate Ember Designs. This all sounds good. Absolutely. It's really, really good stuff. But finally, we're going to go to the islands, and we have some live guests and some uh, f- interesting folks to uh, to talk about what's going to be going on this weekend over there. Windy City Carnival and uh, Many Beats One Rhythm returns to Chicago. It's been going on under different names and different guises since 1996, I believe. But this is the latest version of it, and it's the sixth uh, year in a row that they're doing it. And we have some guests here for it. With us are Kirvan Ardain and Lystra Ardain, co-founders of Windy City Carnival. Great to have you. Thank you for joining us. Good to be here. It's our pleasure. Tell us about yourselves. You're originally from Trinidad and Tobago. Look, let me start off this interview right. When you speak to me, <laughs> she's going to answer. Oh. <laughs> so why don't we just cut through the chase and let her get through the preliminary? So go ahead. <laughs> Strong island it. woman, huh? <laughs> no, I'm the quiet one. <laughs> but yes, we both are from Trinidad and Tobago. Um, came to the U.S. in 1971. We were 14 years of age, so we, Chicago is also our home. Uh, what made you want to start a fe- festival, a carnival festival? Hmm. Growing up in Chicago, the, we had one part of the Caribbean, uh, of the West Indies, that we could celebrate, which was Jamaica, uh, during the Selassie Day celebration. That was the... That was the only thing that I was able to introduce my children to, to connect them to the culture. That really, you know, that, that was a painful moment for me because it was so hard to get them connected to who we were and to get them to see the freedom of the expression of the culture. Carnival had to come because we were just... We were, we were homesick. This is home also, but we, we, we just have two places where we belong. Wow, this is uh, interesting. Uh, you're also trying to do something for the community, for your kids and other uh, people of, uh, people of, uh, of, the, of the descent uh, of the re- part of the world that you're from who don't have the strong connections to home, and you're trying to do a bit of identity preservation for them. And you also want to, uh, you were telling me uh, in the green room that you wanted to be a creative impulse into the community and encourage them to become more creative uh, as individuals. Tell us a little bit about that. Man, I wish I could get you to speak for me. You are real <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah, it, look, who we are uh, as West Indians, it's a unique, uh, we were talking about it, why do I call us Caribbean West Indians? Because in the West Indies, in the West Indian islands, everybody from the mainland, Guyana, uh, Grenada, I mean, uh, uh, what do you call it? Suriname. Suriname, you know, all from the mainland. Yeah. yeah. They are all in Trinidad. Uh huh. You know, they're all in Barbados. And a lot of South Asians, too. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. they, they, 
all the islands have them. So when we say we, we can literally stop at saying, well, they are West Indian islands, but it's just like me saying, I'm from Trinidad. No, I'm from Trinidad and Tobago. It's a twin island. So when we, if you say I'm from Trinidad, what I'm to Tobago? You're splitting the country. So it's like if I'm looking at the West Indies, right. I have to see the Caribbean as a whole, but I also have to carve out that West Indian piece. Right. And it's a melting pot. That's what it is. Yes. And then that's what people are probably going to observe while they're over here. So uh, while they come to to see this, that you know, I've heard some of the best South Asian food is in Trinidad. <laughs> that's yes, uh, you know. Korean. <laughs> yes, the exactly. Korean the roti is a, a meal to, that you have to enjoy. Absolutely. And <laughs> what we were talking about earlier, the what carnival. It's a culmination of even Americans because while we were here, we also had children, and our children are Americans. So this is a legacy not just for us. It's a legacy for all of our children as they grow and get involved in it. And everyone is welcome. It's an event that you have to experience to see the unity and the love, you know, of the people coming together on that one day without any strife or violence it's a joyous day to in, to come on and enjoy we're talking with Lystra Audain and Kirvan Audain co-founders of the Windy City Carnival and with us also is Gabrielle Wright a digital producer here at WBEZ and she is and her family is originally from the Bahamas and was a participant last year. Great to see you. Thanks, Jerome. Um, yeah. Why did you go last year? Why did you want to go? For the same reasons that the carnival came to be, um, just to find it's like a big family reunion. It's mm-hmm. not like a uh, anything to just go and kind of watch or be a spectator. It's it's a real party. It's a reunion and um, for the doubles. I miss eating doubles, so that's what I go for. <laughs> what, what are doubles? Um, it's like chickpeas, and I don't know what the flour pastry is that it, you it, sandwich it between, but that's yeah. it. She described it well. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only time of the year, if, unless I'm in Brooklyn, that I can find them. And how many people from the Bahamas are there? Who's there and who's not? Um, you know, last year I didn't see a bunch of Bahamian flags, mm. but I'm sure we were out there. Yes, this year <laughs> you do have you, Trevor. He is he's actually coming from the Bahamas with a truck and masqueraders from Indianapolis as our oh, guest. Wow. Oh. So yeah. What are masqueraders? Do we want masqueraders at, at our uh, carnival? Oh, yes. <laughs> it's the it's the without story. it. Yeah, there's it's not a carnival. <laughs> exactly, exactly. In the in the in in Trinidad and Tobago, I'm going to give you that. I can speak to that because I belong to that. It's about telling stories. Mm-hmm. I don't care if the stories are fictitious or if they are historical. But it's about telling stories. And the beauty of the art is you're you're actually putting a live painting on the street. And you are asking people, see me. See what I'm thinking. 
and you're bringing it to life. And if the the the, the people that can do it the best, I mean, I, I'm 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 60 years old, and I still remember. I, I don't can't remember. I, I ain't working out the math. In 1966, when I saw Fanfare, it's the most. It was the most powerful spectacle that I saw at the time. It was fans from around the world okay. and every color that you can think about. And it was marvelous. So the carnival is about telling stories. And, and the, the, the Midwest, we have an opportunity here to build something that we have never seen before. And I think those of us that understand carnival are already seeing that those little differences and we have the best route. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to take that liberty. In all the carnivals in the United States, it, it has the best route. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's the route that the bands parade around. There is none like it. You know, when the bands come and down we're the we're on streets, the midway in yes, the, midway the University of Chicago. Yes. yes. And you're coming down, there's going to be a judging area. So the bands all come down and they're judged, but you have the spectators on each side. It, our spectators don't stand in the hot sun. Our spectators stand underneath the beautiful trees of the midway. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, yes. look, it's the most marvelous thing. The, the, the vision is for us to actually one day, to actually come off of Lakeshore Drive. Could you imagine 5 o'clock in the morning listening wow. to Amazing Grace on a steel drum? Orchestra, (laughs) and you just have the smooth breeze blowing, and you hear this music, and you see these costumes. The costumes are um, one of my favorites. It would be marvelous. Marvelous. It would be marvelous. And this is what is uh, is available for Chicago Mm -hmm. to to have. So, what kind of um, you've got this? When does that take place? How do we get? How do we time our our visit to Carnival so that we can see the parade? The, go ahead. On Saturday, which is tomorrow, the eighteenth, the first band leaves off at eleven thirty. So we are advising people to come before eleven thirty with your chairs to sit down and see the spectacle. We have eleven trucks, and each truck have masqueraders behind them with the music. So we, you're going to see visions like um, what is called, some called Kingdom of Kush. So most likely it's coming out of Africa. Then we have the tropical gardens, beautiful flowers. We have um, Band of Paradise. We have um, one of them called the Rastafarians. So they're going to show you something about Rastafarians mm-hmm. tomorrow. Um, uh, we have something called Africa and the Rhythm and the rhythm uh, mass bands, Ronaldo. So we have 11 bands coming out there, 11 trucks with music on there and the masqueraders behind. So as you look on, you're going to see the competition. We have best band, best dance. Somebody's going to win best dance this year. Uh-huh. And that's a spectacle I'm waiting for because I have, don't really have any idea which, which of the trucks are going to be performing the dances right now. So it's a surprise for us also. All right. Gabby, you were talking to one of the dancers, the, some of the bands that were coming in? Yes. Um, her name is Stacy Latrice. Um, oh, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. she yeah. just she started a new band and dance group this year, mm-hmm. and they're looking forward to um, participating and competing. Mm-hmm. And um, she's kind of like a Catherine Dunham in the making. She's really into bridging um, the African diaspora um, and Chicago culture, and just kind of creating a bridge between the the, the two worlds. Mm-hmm. And yes. um, she she is. She's an advocate for um, dancing against the stereotype of uh, hypersexualized culture when it comes to um, to um, to carnival. And uh, so, so she, what she finds is that if you go to the to carnival this weekend, you'll have an opportunity to um, learn more about the dance moves and mm-hmm. um, their history, what they're rooted in. Um, some of them, um, it, it is about, some of it is about mating. Um, some of it is just about um, being free. Mm-hmm. And and it's, she also says that it uh, really plays a big part in rites of passage. So you'll, you'll, you'll learn about that too. And, Everyone experiences a rite of passage, so yeah. And and our our dance is called whining. Whining. When you move your waist from left to right, <laughs> up and down, it's called whining. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, that sounds terrific. There will be lots of whining. There will yes. be lots of food. Lots of Dublin. <laughs> 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 and quickies and a lot of other okay. great foods. Yes. And we have many vendors also. We have arts and craft and food vendors from Belize, Trinidad and Tobago, Jamaica, Panama. Fantastic. So we have wow. lots of food for you to come on out. Don't bring any food. Don't bring any drinks. Come on out and get your drinks and your food from the Midway Pleasance yeah, tomorrow. Support the vendors, yeah. Well, it sounds terrific. Windy City Carnival, I'm glad it's happening, and it's going to be going down 11.30. Get there uh, for the yes. for the trucks coming in and the band competition. Thanks a lot for joining us, Kervan Audain and Lystra Audain, founders of Windy City Carnival, and Gabrielle Wright, our digital producer for WBEZ, originally from Families from the Bahamas, and looking forward to another visit to Windy City Carnival. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Nari Safavi, great to see you and have yourself an excellent weekend. Thank you for having me. Monday on Worldview, we'll continue with our series on Puerto Rico and we'll talk about something that happened after Hurricane Maria. Thousands of prisoners from uh, Puerto Rico were moved to Arizona and we'll talk with a reporter who wrote an expose on the move. Critics say the process is similar to human trafficking. So we'll do that tomorrow or Monday on Worldview. Have a great weekend yourself tomorrow, and Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.